Good morning. Good to be with you again. We are back in Psalm number 37, verse 4 for the message this morning. So I invite you to turn there, Psalm number 37, verse 4. And if you will be prepared to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, toward the end of the message, if we have time, we'll be looking at a few verses there, 1 Peter chapter 1. But the message is from Psalm 37, verse 4. This is part two of a message that uh, I started last week entitled, Delighting in the Lord. Delighting in the Lord, part two. Verse four says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So we're looking at this verse um, with a a simple two-point outline. Last week we looked at the first part, uh, part point number one, which would be the command, and the command is to delight yourself in the Lord. Now, I'm just going to take uh, just a couple moments here and briefly review some observations uh, that we made about delighting in the Lord. Very quickly, there were five of them. Um, Item A, delighting in the Lord is not natural or automatic. Otherwise, why would we need to be commanded to do it? We saw that the natural man, sinful man, unsaved man does not love God, does not rejoice in God, really doesn't want anything to do with God. But when God saves a man or regenerates him and sends his Holy Spirit to live in his life, he now has the capacity and the, and the beginnings of the desire to love God and to rejoice in him. So delighting in the Lord is not natural or automatic. It is the, the work of the Spirit. Um, item B, delighting in the Lord, means delighting in the person of the Lord. Now, we are to delight in the works of the Lord, the things that He does, but we are to primarily to delight in, in who He is, the, the person of the Lord. Item C was delighting in the Lord is the only true, all-satisfying, lasting joy. Delighting in the Lord is the only true, all-satisfying, lasting joy. Item D was delighting in the Lord cannot be separated from delighting in the things of the Lord, like uh, the word of the Lord, praying to the Lord, the people of the Lord, worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord. You can't, you can't not delight in those, but yet delight in God. It's a, it's a package deal. And then finally, we saw item E, And this was extremely important, that delighting in the Lord is necessary for glorifying Him. And we went back to the Westminster Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? And remember, the answer is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. We bring glory to God when we delight in Him and rejoice in Him. So that was last week under point number one, the command. The second part of the verse is the promise. That's point number two, the promise. And um, as I was uh, going back to, I, I preached on this verse years ago, and as I was going back to study it again um, these last two weeks, um, I saw there was so much more here, and uh, after studying this this week even more, I thought, you know, this really deserves a whole sermon series. You could write a book on this one verse alone. There is just so much here as we uh, dig deep uh, on this subject of delighting in the Lord, but uh, we will try to wrap it up today with uh, number two. Point number two, the promise, and that is this, he shall give you the desires of your heart. So it's a promise. Delight in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So we're on point number two, uh, talking about that promise. Now, 
this needs uh, a great deal of explanation, what it means when God promises that he will give us the desires of our heart. Uh, this type of promise, and you know there are, there are a lot of other verses that are, are very similar to this promise. This type of promise is often misunderstood, um, honestly misunderstood. There are some who grapple with, well, what does that really mean? So there is some honest misunderstanding of promises like this, but, and worse, there are, there, there, there are intentional twistings of this kind of promise. And you can just imagine, do this and God will give you the desires of your heart. So we need to understand what this verse means and what this verse doesn't mean. Now, uh, regarding the twisting of these kinds of promises, there are, there are those who will intentionally misinterpret this verse and similar verses to say this, God promises you as his children anything that you want. All you have to do is is pray in faith for this or that thing, name it and claim it, and it is yours. After all, what did Jesus say in Matthew 21, 22? And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So see there, all you've got to do is in faith, name it and claim it, and God has obligated himself to give it to you. Now, what what's in mind here is generally things like health and wealth. Health and wealth, okay? So, so God will give you near-perfect health in this life. After all, Psalm 103 says, He forgives all your iniquities and He heals all your diseases. So see there, it is God's will that you never suffer from a disease. You just pray to Him in faith that you'll be healed and you will be healed. You'll have health. Also the promise of wealth, earthly riches. After all, what does 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, say? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. See there, it is God's will that you be wealthy, that you have a big bank account and all this money. After all, that's what it says here. Just name it and claim it. Now, these kinds of misinterpretations of those and other scriptures are part of a theology that's sometimes called prosperity theology. You've probably heard that term, or health, wealth, and prosperity. And again, one of the main tenets of this kind of theology is that it is God's will that each one of his children are prosperous and successful in this life in earthly things, material things, that it is God's will. God is just waiting in heaven to give you health and wealth and all these other things if you'll just come to him in faith and name it and claim it. So God's will that each of his children be prosperous and successful in this earthly life. Now, I'm going to name some names. Some of these prosperity preachers and teachers uh, have, have already passed on, but some of you remember Robert Schuler. Uh, he was one of those that preached a prosperity gospel. Um, Kenneth Hagin. Um, in our day, Joel Osteen. I'm sorry, Joel and Victoria Osteen. They're co-pastors of that church. Um, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, T. Day J- uh, Jakes, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, and, and many others. Now, I know some folks get a little uncomfortable when we start naming names, but uh, there is a biblical precedent for that. Um, for example, in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul calls out the names of two false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus. 
He says, I want you to beware. Don't listen to them. They're false teachers. So there is a good a good place, a good reason that we do need to name names and say, stay away from these preachers and teachers. They are preaching or teaching falsehood, and, a, and at best a watered-down gospel, if not a false gospel. Now, I quoted some verses that they use to push the prosperity theology, and I wish we had time to look at those um, in depth and, and, and show why they are, how they have been misinterpreted and misapplied by prosperity preachers, but we don't have time. Uh, suffice it to say for right now that um, they're, they're normally taking verses out of context, okay? taking verses out of context, misapplying promises of future blessings to apply to the here and now, um, and also recasting promises of spiritual blessings um, to, uh, uh, to, to mean material blessings. So those are some of the main ways that they twist and corrupt Scripture in order to support their, their bad theology. So just kind of keep that in mind. But when we look at some of these false teachers, or most of these false teachers, what we see is that they are greedy, they're covetous, they use religion for personal gain, and they're normally appealing to the covetousness of, of others. Um, just a few verses here. 1 Timothy 6.5, where Paul is um, referring to false teachers and their false teaching, he says, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, they see religion. Ah, here's an angle for us to get rich. Uh, Peter, in his last epistle, second, second, you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you some selections. Um, he dealt with false teachers. In chapter 2, he said this, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And listen to this, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. The King James Version says, we'll make merchandise of you. They'll look at you as a way to grow rich, and they'll appeal to your covetousness. And then he goes on and says in verse 14 and 15 of that that, uh, passage, um, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So they are covetous. They get rich through their false teaching. They appeal to covetousness. And it's amazing the large audiences they gather. Uh, you'll, you'll have already noticed from the names that I named, these are people who, who have or had big TV ministries, speaking to thousands in an arena or, uh, or uh, uh, an auditorium and even more by home. And the Bible tells us that people want to hear that kind of thing. Who doesn't want to hear, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and rich and have earthly prosperity? 2 Timothy 4 3 through 4 says, For the time will come when they, when people, will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. See, prosperity theology appeals to our lusts and our covetousness. We want to hear that God wants us healthy and wealthy and successful and prosperous in this life. So you see, there's really no delight in the Lord there. 
There's a delight in earthly, material things. By the way, there's always a grain of truth and falsehood. Yes, God does in general give us health. We believe that God does heal at times, and God does meet our needs, but that's, that's completely different than saying that God wants you to be a millionaire and never have any physical infirmities whatsoever. There's a huge difference there. But uh, with prosperity theology, no delight in the Lord. It's just a delight in earthly prosperity, and the prosperity gospel is in direct contradiction to Jesus' call to discipleship in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, where he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he even talks about losing our life for the sake of the Lord and the gospel. So um, be aware that there are false teachers out there who will twist these promises like God will give you the desires of your heart. And let, let this also underscore that we need to be careful how we present the gospel because even we ourselves, who we're pretty confident that we reject the prosperity gospel, and I believe we do in our types of churches, but we need to be careful that we're not promising unbelievers things God doesn't promise. Um, on YouTube, uh, it was last year, I was uh, listening to uh, an interview with a, a famous pastor down in the metro area. I'm not, I'm not going to call his name, but he said that his church just wants to put out the message, try Jesus, he'll make your life better. You know, again, a grain of truth, <laughs> absolutely, he'll make your life better. But, but that, is, that, is a, that, does not, not, that is not a clear gospel, okay? Uh, when we give an unbeliever the impression that, boy, if I accept Christ as Savior, I'm not going to have any problems, we have lied to them. Because the truth is, when you receive Christ as Savior, yes, you have salvation, you have a home in heaven, you have the greatest gift, you have the gift of God himself. That's the point of this verse. Um, but you know what? You're going to suffer in this life. Paul said, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In some ways, you're going to bring problems in your life. So we need to send out a, a clear gospel, not the gospel of prosperity theologians. So if, if this promise is not saying that, what is it saying? What does it mean when God says, if you delight in him, he will give you the desires of your heart? Well, I've got three points. Item A... Um, the Lord promises to answer our prayers. Okay, I, I do believe this is, uh, this is a promise that God will answer our prayers. The word that is translated desires there uh, means petitions and requests. So it's one of the many promises that we have that God hears and answers the prayers of his children. But is it is it an open-ended promise? Is it, is it a promise that, that you as a child of God, you can have anything and everything you want immediately just by asking God? Well, of course not. Of course not. God knows that would not be good for us. He would be doing us no favors by giving us everything we want and anything we want immediately. We have to consider the totality of what Scripture teaches about the topic of prayer. For example, God does not obligate himself to answer prayers for wrong things. He doesn't obligate himself to answer prayers that are prayed with the wrong motives. James 4.3 says, you ask 
Now, the, the, the verse before that is, you have not because you ask not. That, and then verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures or your lusts. So if you're asking it to spend upon your pleasures or your lust, lust don't expect that God is going to answer that prayer. He does not obligate himself to answer that kind of prayer. Um, now having said that, let me issue a caution Sometimes God does give people what they ask for, but it's a form of punishment or discipline. Like in the Old Testament where Israel demanded an earthly king to be like the other nations, and it was really a rejection of God being their king. And he gave them a king, and he told them that that was going to bring all sorts of grief and sorrow, and and it did. Um, Also, God's not obligated to, to answer requests that are made by his children who are living in and persisting in unrepentant sin. Uh, David said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity or if I treasure iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So, so there are, we, we have to take into account these other teachings in looking at these promises of answered prayer. See, a, a man who's treasuring iniquity in his heart is not treasuring God. So he's not obeying the command of the first part of the verse to delight himself in in God. So we have to consider the totality of what Scripture teaches about prayer when we look at these verses. Um, And to kind of just summarize it, our prayers have to be according to God's will. In 1 John 5.14, we have this precious promise, another precious promise. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will... He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. So there's a promise that God will answer our prayers when they are according to His, to his will. Now, you may respond to that and react to that like I, I have done in my past in earlier years because it's like, wow, you read these promises, it seems like you get whatever you want from God, and then you hear, but it has to be according to His will, and you go, oh, I knew there was a catch. <laughs> okay, I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I have to confess, there, were, there have been times that's been my reaction, but, but that reaction shows that we... We're missing something. We're missing that God's promise here is so much better. So the, the, the blessing is so much more that He is willing to give us than getting a luxury car or a second home, a vacation home, or this or that or whatever. He's promising us so something so much better than what our little fleshly minds can conceive of. So. We need to stay anchored in the first part of the verse. If we, and, and this is it. Okay, my prayers have to be according to God's will for him to answer them. And, and here, here's, here's the key. If, if we are delighting in the Lord, like what we talked about last week, if we are truly delighting in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, our heart's desires are going to be increasingly conformed to his will. You see, you see there, if I delight in the Lord, then I'm going to delight in what He wants, and that's going to have the effect of, of, of transforming my desires. 
to where, to where I'm going to want what he wants. Now, it won't be perfect in this life. It's a growth process. But increasingly, um, I'm going to want what he wants because I delight in him and I want to be a delight to him. I want to be pleasing to him as his only begotten son was. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so, and so uh, all of God's children will then want to be more like Christ and please him. So a man who is delighting in the Lord is not going to be asking for sinful things or for sinful, uh, uh, from sinful motives, at least not knowingly. He's not going to do that. He's not going to persist in unrepentant sin. He's going to keep short accounts with God. When he sins, he's going to go before God and confess and be purged and ask for the grace to overcome in the future. So his heart's desires are going to be increasingly conformed to God's will. And as he expresses those in prayer, God answers those prayers. Now, that doesn't mean that God always answers those prayers specifically how we would like him to, okay? But he will answer. Now, going back to the the passage that was read earlier out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, again, Paul was given this thing he he calls a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And Christians have debated for 2,000 years what he's talking about. Some believe it was a physical infirmity, possibly something to do with with his eyes, cross-referencing that to some statements in Galatians. Others believe that it was a, a man who was sent to persecute him, maybe like Alexander the coppersmith that he writes about in another letter. But whatever it was, it was was bad. And Paul said, I prayed three times for God to remove this. I don't think that just means he said three times remove this. I think he's probably referring to seasons of intense prayer where he just fell on his face for, for long periods of time and just begged God to take away this thorn of the flesh. And what did God say? God said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to give you the grace to bear up under that thorn in the flesh. In your weakness, my strength is going to be shown. And what did Paul say? I will gladly, therefore, bear these infirmities. And talked about this joy that he had by experiencing the grace of God that helped him to bear up under that thorn of of the flesh that God was going to keep in his life. So uh, Paul ended up getting something better. He actually ended up getting something better than God removing the thorn. God gives Paul the grace to bear up under it, and he actually delighted in it. So you see the increase of joy? So this is item A. The Lord does promise to answer our prayers. He will give us the desires of our heart. But that's just a little stronger, though, right? The desires of our heart. So item B, uh, let's keep exploring it. Item B. The Lord promises us a glorious and joyous future. The Lord promises us a glorious and joyous future. You know, we're delighting in the Lord when we're we're walking in faith and in in love and gratefulness and serving the Lord and learning more about Him, all in the uh, you know by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we, We 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 increasingly long for the day. We long for the day when we are delivered completely from the weakness 
and the temptations that we face in this fleshly body. We, we increasingly want to be delivered from temptation and, and sin and suffering and pain and grief and sorrow and death. We, we, we long for the day. It's the desire of our heart for Christ to come back and do away with all of that. Glorify us, complete our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, and let eternity begin that has none of those things. And so those are the, 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 the real desires of the heart of the godly man or woman or young person to, to come into the full and eternal joy of the presence of the Lord. You'll remember in Romans chapter 7 where Paul Paul opened up and described his own battle of sin against sin. Remember, he said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I find myself falling into sin and doing things that I hate. And he gets to the end of the chapter and he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then in the next chapter, Romans chapter 8, he talks about how we that are still in these, these, these corrupt dying bodies, that we, we, we long for the completion of redemption when Christ will return and change our bodies, glorify our bodies and, and rescue us from them and bring us into that joyful eternity that he has promised to us. Now, that is the context of Psalm 37. That's the context of Psalm 37. Remember, we always need to interpret verses in their context. Okay, And David is dealing with the situation as it stands now, where we look out and we see the wicked prospering. The wicked prosper. And we wonder, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Well, God says, wait, wait, be patient, wait. The, 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 this psalm, we're going to we're, we're get ready to read uh, verses 1 through 11 so we can read it in context. This psalm refutes prosperity theology because it talks about how the wicked prosper and how the righteous suffer in this, in this life. And so what we find in this psalm, there's a call to trust God in the midst of all of this. Don't be angry. Don't fret. Commit your way to God. Wait for Him patiently. Have faith. Don't envy the wicked their prosperity, any pleasure they have, and it's not true joy, by the way, an unsaved man cannot experience true, lasting joy. Whatever pleasure they have is fleeting, temporary, and short-lived. So let's read verses 1 through 11 of Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And let me just stop right here. Notice the future stuff. He will do this. He shall do that. Let's keep going. Verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who, what? Prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only causes harm. Verse 9 For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, look at that, they shall inherit the earth. 
For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look diligently for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells God's people, wait, trust in God, wait, wait patiently. Don't fret, don't be angry, don't envy the prosperity of the, of the wicked. Wait, because Christ is coming back and he's going to complete redemption, usher in his kingdom, and then you saints, you are going to enjoy the abundance of peace and true prosperity and, and joy. So see, this is not a hollow promise. When God says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart, He's going to make it good. The fullness of the promise, the fulfillment will come at the return of Christ. But it's a certain thing. This is not a hollow promise. God will bring it to pass. Freedom from suffering, freedom from sin, freedom from death. He'll give us peace and unbroken joy. Have patience. It is coming. Hebrews 10, 36-37 says, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, that ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and not tarry. Christ is coming back, and he will usher in all of those, all of those things. So, you know, some of God's people, far from experiencing all this health and wealth that's promised by the prosperity preachers, some of God's people experience unimaginable suffering in this life. There are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today who are suffering persecution for their faith, while you and I are enjoying the blessing of meeting in this building and that we have no fear of persecution, we have air control and all sorts of comforts. I don't know that that's going to last in our lifetime, by the way. Uh, but, but there are brothers and sisters of ours across this world right now that are suffering for their, for their faith. And they are able to persevere by delighting in the Lord and focusing on what God has in store for them in the future. Delighting in Him now and focusing on these promises helps us get through suffering now. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that, oh, it's all about joy then. No, we can experience a measure of joy now. So let's move on to item C. The Lord promises us an increasing joy in Him now and forever, but now and forever. Now let's go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 9, a fairly lengthy section of Scripture. But uh, would you kind of be attentive to the, to the, the principles that we've already looked at here in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9? Because Peter's going to talk about the joy that we have as Christians, but also acknowledge the suffering. But notice his emphasis on being able to enjoy God and delight in Him in the midst of suffering while we look forward to that ultimate joy. Let's begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance 
incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Okay, that future joy. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation, the second coming of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with what? Joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So do you see that that already but not yet motif there that we see so often in Scripture? Yes, ultimate, lasting, unbroken joy at the revelation at the second coming of Christ when he comes to gather his people and inaugurate his, his kingdom. But we can experience joy now. It will be mingled with sorrow of various sorts and trials and afflictions, but it is very real and we can experience it. Um, there is joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Peter said, you haven't seen Christ but you believe in him and you rejoice in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The, the joy in the person of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we delight in the Lord, we desire him. We desire more of him and he gives us more of himself. We can experience an increasing amount of joy in this life. Um, I referred to last uh, last week that uh, many of us are indebted to John Piper for pointing out to us, maybe in a way that we had not seen in the past, that that we glorify God by rejoicing in Him, uh, by desiring Him. That's uh, the name of His ministry, desiring God. We should desire God, and when we do, God gives of Himself to us. Psalm 42, 1 through 2, as the heart, as the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after Thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. So we see there that that desire for God. And listen, God meets that desire. And the more he gives of himself, the more we experience, the more we want. So the desire just keeps increasing, but the delight keeps on increasing as well. He meets the desires of our hearts. So while the fullest experience of that joy is future, at the return of Christ... We can experience it now. Yes, mingled with sin and sorrow, but we can experience it now. Now, let me go back to something I said last week. Point C of last week was that delighting in the Lord is the only true, all-satisfying, lasting joy. You remember that? And I said last week that that joy in the Lord can be experienced in the midst of and in spite of suffering. And the truth is, it can even be enhanced by it. I think that's one of the points that Paul was making in his testimony in 2 Corinthians 12 there about when he pleaded for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. And God said, no, I'm going to give you the grace to bear up. And Paul said, and I, I, gla- I gladly boast in my infirmities now. I delight in that because it brought him into a closer relationship with the Lord. So it, it's a hard truth 
but it is true that God often uses suffering in the life of a believer uh, to cause him or her to grow and and to to kind of break our attachment to earthly pleasures and things and to and to treasure God more to look at him as the greatest gift that he has given himself to us in that relationship, that saving relationship that we, we have in him. Um, I, I said that I really wish we had a, many, many Sundays to, to look at this more in depth, but uh, again, suffering can be used by God to bring a person into to greater joy. Um, when, when we suffer, what do we do? We tend to run to God, don't we? We, we tend to get more serious about prayer because we're feeling the weight of some burden, of some trial, of some tribulation or temptation, and, it, and it, it serves to drive us to our knees. And so we come more into the presence of our Heavenly Father, and in His presence is, is joy. Um, you know, Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 4, most of you are familiar with this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Joy in the Lord is possible even in the worst of circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. Listen, delighting in the Lord, I, I, I tell you, you uh, I'm not recommending you do this. You probably, you, you probably have seen this kind of thing where you, 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 you see on TV or YouTube these these uh, so-called worship services with the prosperity preachers and all that. And, and it just seems like there's this shallow, syrupy emotionalism. You know what I'm talking about? It just seems like it's manufactured, just, just shallow and syrupy. And it's just you know the kind of stuff you'd probably see on TBN programming. That's not, that's not what the Bible speaks of. It's not shallow surface emotionalism. It is a deep-seated sense of inner joy in the Lord that can be experienced even in the midst of suffering. See, our joy in the Lord does not come from outward circumstances. The delight in the Lord doesn't come from outward circumstances. Therefore, it can't be taken away by outward circumstances, although God can use outward circumstances to enhance our enjoyment of of him so it's a joy that can't be taken away as we know we're so often tempted to get our eyes on our troubles you know uh, how many sermons have been preached about peter going out on the water to walk to christ and what does he do he starts looking at the waves and he starts sinking yeah we do that we get our eyes on our on our our circumstances and then we that starts to rob us of our joy well what's the answer get our eyes back on on god the source of of true joy. So God does promise, even in this life, that we experience joy and increasing joy. Um, I want to kind of wrap this up with a, a quote from Matthew Henry. He wrote, God is not promised to gratify all the appetites of the body and the humors of the fancy, but to grant all the desires of the heart all the cravings of the renewed, sanctified soul. What is the desire of the heart of a good man? It is this, to know and love and live to God, to please Him and to be pleased in Him. End of quote. God has promised to meet those 
desires here and fully in eternity. So what's the command and the promise? The command is delight yourself in the Lord. The promise is he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll answer your prayers. He'll give you, he will bring about a joyous, glorious future for you and for all of his children, forever free of sin and suffering, rejoicing in him. And he will also grant you joy now in increasing measure. Let me end by reading to you just a few verses from the end of Psalm 16. By the way, this is the one that Peter refers to in his Pentecost sermon that refers to the resurrection, uh, but it applies to uh, all, all believers. He said, you, O Lord, are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Psalm 16, 5, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. In other words, you are my delight, Lord. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David had it right, and ultimately that was about Christ. And by extension, all of his people, eternal joys. Well, is there somebody in this room today that you are abiding in your sins? You are, you are seeking joy and satisfaction in the world? You will never find it. You will never find it. The truth of Scripture says this, that because you have sinned, you are under God's wrath. You have, this is not popular nowadays. You have personally offended a holy God. And the Bible says that God's wrath rests upon you. And if you leave this life in that state, you will go into eternal misery and torment. The just punishment for your rebellion against God because you knew His law and you continued to break it and to provoke Him. God's wrath is real. It is real. He is just and He is holy. And just as we expect a human judge to carry out the penalty of the law on a lawbreaker, God, the righteous judge of the universe, will carry out His sentence upon sin, which is eternity separated from Him in hell. God is holy and righteous. God is also gracious. And God is merciful. And God is willing to forgive. God is patient in His long-suffering. And we see this displayed perfectly and supremely in the fact that God sent His Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He, he, God became a man, and He lived a perfect, sinless life. And then He went to the cross, and He suffered and died, not for anything He had done because He never sinned, but He suffered and died in the place of His people. He took God's wrath on, that should have fallen on us, on himself. He bore it on the cross as the substitute for God's people. And then as Psalm 16 said, God did not leave his body in the grave. He raised him from the dead in glory and victory. 
And God commands us for our own good to repent of our sins and to place our faith in Christ as Savior, not in what we can do, but what He did, not in who we are, but in who He is, the Son of God who died on the cross bearing God's wrath that should have come upon His people, who is now risen and in heaven. And Christ Christ Himself says, Come unto me, come unto me. Any man that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You will not be refused by the Savior if you come to Him and humbleness and repentance and faith in Him. And He will forgive you and He will bring you into this joy that we have talked about and, and enable you to serve Him from a standpoint of love and joy and thankfulness, bringing honor and glory to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that You have given us this book that is absolutely true. You loved us enough to tell us the truth, Lord. Help us who are your people by your grace to bring honor and glory to you by rejoicing in you. And we thank you for the the eternity that you have stored up for us. May we wait for that. Uh, Wait in certain hope that you will bring it to pass, that you will fulfill the ultimate desires of our heart to be with you and to be delivered from sin and suffering and death. We thank you. And Lord, for anyone who may be here today who does not stand in that relationship with you, will you in mercy, Lord, open that one's heart and soul and spirit to the truth of the gospel. Save that one and enable him or her to respond to you in repentance and faith to the saving of the soul and ultimately to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.